Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. You know, it's oftentimes a journey the way God unfolds his path to us, isn't it? We might have an idea on how things are going to work, but usually we're surprised. And sometimes that comes with a little bit of turmoil, (laughs) but God is always faithful. It reminds me a bit of Melissa and I's story. Um, I'll be sprinkling a little bit of our past and our history in over these next few months as we get to know each other. But we were married in 1998. For some of you, that sounds like not long ago. For some of you, that sounds like forever ago. Um, But we were married in 1998. Um, We were in no particular rush to have kids. We kind of we're on the mission field a little bit and then kind of doing life together and it was great. Then um, maybe the stirrings to have a family started to grow, but Y2K was coming, so we had to wait. Remember Y2K? (laughs) The world could have ended. I mean, it could have been terrible, but the sun rose and everything was just fine. So um, yeah, we began kind of considering and planning to have our family and We did have a failed pregnancy before Isaiah was born. Um, That was difficult. Um, You know, but you work through it. God worked through us and brought healing to Melissa and tried again, and Isaiah was on the way. Um, The excitement that comes with knowing your child's coming. Gabrielle, Liam, I'm thinking of you guys. Like, the terror and the fear, maybe, that you had at moments. in your pregnancy, but also that's the expectation and looking forward to things. And you never know how it's gonna go. You know, Melissa had a great pregnancy. There was no concerns or alarms. Her, everything, every mother I think, thinks I'm gonna be one of those moms who delivers a week early. It's gonna be so easy. (laughs) The due date came and went, you know, and then two days after the due date came and went and a week after the due date came and went, and two weeks after the due date came, and it was clear that uh, we needed to be induced, and so we went to the hospital, most was induced, had a long labor, you know, when induction happens, it's not always fast, but a long labor, and the time came when contractions were coming, and it was time to start, and it was clear something was wrong, because Isaiah's heartbeat started dropping with each contraction and things like that, and so quickly, a C-section was ordered and, you know, the kind of the chaos of that and being in the midst. Um, but everything went smoothly. Isaiah was delivered by C-section, happy and healthy. And it wasn't the story we planned. It wasn't the way we thought it was going to go. But God was faithful. I think it was at his four or six month checkup, his three month checkup. They they kind of just doing the typical checkup. They noticed he didn't have a soft spot in the top of his skull. And um, 
So they started to do some x-rays and things, and it was clear that he had sagittal synostosis. That means like all the, um, the plates in the baby's head that are separate, as so the baby can grow, were fused already. Which would have meant that over time, there would have been a, vis a, a visible deformation, potentially pressure, but you know, not a life and death threatening thing, but definitely something to think about. And so we thought and prayed and considered how best to care for and treat Isaiah. And at nine months old, he had reconstructive surgery and they kind of took everything apart and put it all back together again. Did you know they could do that? It's amazing. Um, and here he is all these years later, you, you, you know and love Isaiah. Perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. But just again, one of those examples of you think you know how things are going to go. And then sometimes, oftentimes, you're surprised. We could have never have predicted the journey that we would have taken with the birth of Isaiah. Or for any of our kids, for that matter. Everyone's a surprise. Everyone goes different. For Eleanor's birth... Smooth sailing. She came early. It was so relaxed. Uh, there was a life flight pilot who needed an observation. They asked if he could observe. And so we had a life flight person on that side, our midwife on that side. The baby just came. It was amazing. You know, but isn't that true of almost every aspect of our lives that we put so much expectation and perhaps even pressure on ourselves to fit in to maybe our expectation, maybe the expectation of the world around us for how our lives should go. Especially in regards to life and family and health, physicality, the health of our loved ones. You know, because we know our physical bodies what we experience in our bodies, what we experience in creation is so deeply tied to our emotional health, right? They're connected. Our bodies and our souls are one, and that's how we're created. We can't escape that connection. But have you noticed that, you know, we've been chasing after some of these tensions so far in Advent. We've been chasing after that tension of hope and expectation knowing that Christ has come and still recognizing the need for work, the tension of peace and sometimes the fear and trepidation we feel. Today, we're going to be chasing after the theme of joy. And I have to be honest with you that, you know, this can be a bit of a challenging one to preach, especially if you're trying to be mindful of not only your heart, but the hearts of all of you folks. Because so many of you have different relationships with that idea of joy. The idea comes with quite a bit of tension in our lives. Because how often are we actually feeling joyful in the moment? I mean, when it really comes down to it. And yet, that's kind of the expectation that we should be joyful. Somehow, all of this expectation to have more joy or the social pressure of those around us to be more joyful, uh, you know, is just kind of sitting right below the surface. 
in the midst of our day-to-day lives. Even for me, and I would consider myself a pretty optimistic person, hopeful person. But can you relate to that? Can you relate to this idea? Is anyone willing to admit that maybe today, maybe this morning, you have a bit of a strained relationship with joy? You know, it could be elusive, it could be ambiguous, hard to find at times, and once you do find it, it can sometimes be harder to hold on to, to keep around. You know, we tend to have this strained relationship because I think we so often misunderstand what joy, at least in the biblical term, the biblical sense, what joy really is. You know, happiness and joy are considered interchangeably. But they're actually pretty two distinct things. They're two completely different things. The key point being that God promises joy, but he doesn't necessarily promise happiness. Happiness is an emotion like sadness, like jealousy, like fear. It's the result when our immediate well-being is being satisfied. That's happiness, right? And happiness happens to us. It feels great, but it can be temporary. When we're happy, it's only a matter of time, sometimes just minutes or seconds, that it begins to fade. Or perhaps it gets snuffed out in a moment. When you walk in, you're feeling totally happy, totally good. Somebody says the wrong thing and, whoops, why did they say that? You know, that kind of thing. This is where the tension, I think, lies because we tend to treat joy interchangeably with happiness. The word joy appears, or the words that we use for joy appears hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible. And actually, there's 15 different kind of root words, root forms of it. We're going to look at a couple of them. But simcha is a word that's used for joy or gladness. And it means gladness. It means mirth. So essentially, it's this term of happiness that we've been thinking about. Simcha, right? Then there's samach. I have to look at my pronunciation guide. There's samak, which uh, also means joy, but it means to rejoice. There's much more of an action here, an action that leads perhaps to happiness, but it's more of a command that happens. Simcha appears 93 times in the Old Testament, but the first occurrence being in Genesis 31, the words of happiness and joy that are in creation. But Simcha occurs 150 times in the Old Testament. It's definitely the much more common term. So seemingly, we are more encouraged to choose joy than to feel happiness. So biblical joy appears to be a state of being which may encompass happiness, but it is a lot more. Joy is promised by God as something that is gifted to us even something that we might strive after. In other words, we do not create the conditions for joy. It's given, no matter our circumstances. And it's something that we have to really work hard to grab onto, to maintain in the midst of difficulty. But even joy is something that we must nurture and hold gently in the midst of expectation, like the birth of your children like the raising of your children, like the sending off of your children when they, Isaiah turned 21 yesterday. Happy birthday, Isaiah. 
but as you nurture your family. Remember the 2008 election, the election in which Obama was elected? So let's set our politics aside because I don't want that to be distracting, but the statement that was made by electing the first black president in, to the presidency, it was amazing. Um, the first black president leading our country, doing the best he could, living in a house that was built on slave labor. Right? Think about that. Remember this? Do you remember what you might have been feeling in, in that moment? Imagine what the Obama family must have felt moving in to the residence at the White House. I mean, they probably weren't talking about it as they walked in, but I'm sure they were thinking about it, especially mom and dad. But electing a black president did not erase centuries of racism or injustice in our country or our world. The joy that we felt was held in kind of honest, honesty, honest tension. The fact that this is amazing step, this is amazing progress, but we still have so much to do, right? It wasn't blind or arrogant to the challenges that were to come, that they would, Obama's would face in their leadership of the country. Yet we felt joy for the progress. Is this good? Are you kind of recognizing kind of where we're going today? Today, we'll be considering the joy that is offered, the joy that's encouraged and expected of us in the season of Advent. But I want to be very intentional in recognizing the tension that we may have with this command, with this gift. As, remember, as we remember joy today, experiencing happiness depends on external factors. Let's recognize that. Happiness happens to us. Even though we may seek it out or chase it or pursue it, feeling happy is not a choice that we make. Joy, on the other hand, is most often purposefully, intentionally chosen by us. We faithfully step into it as best we can. You know, when we're we're going to be preaching out of Isaiah 35 today. When we're looking at Isaiah 35, it's important to kind of recognize what the book of Isaiah is doing because it does a lot. The book of Isaiah is essentially the chief among other biblical prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. So much of it is about the healing and the reconciliation, the justice that will come. More so even than Micah or Jeremiah or the others, Isaiah's prophetic theme concerning the coming of the Savior and the kingdom that he would establish on earth, this is what he was after. So everything we read in Isaiah kind of has to have that in mind. The majority of the book is working on the premise that hope and help is on the way, even though things might be bad in the moment. And it makes sense because Isaiah is writing to Israel and to Judah in a season and time in which these nations were constantly under threat. From the Babylonians and from the Assyrians, they were constantly 
being harried. War step, war was on the doorstep, as a matter of fact. And in the midst of Isaiah's writing, or at least in the midst of the arc of his book, Israel was invaded, defeated, and marched off into captivity into Assyria. And so we have to recognize that this also is happening. Isaiah is encouraging hope and promise and the coming of a Messiah. Meanwhile, Israel's under war, being held in captivity. As a matter of fact, verses, we're in 35 today, right? So in verses 32 and 34, the chapters right before, God is reminding us through the prophet the importance of the renewal of our righteousness and devotion and faith and honoring and serving God, obeying his commands and doing right. There's also some pretty heavy warnings in there of what happens when you don't. They're kind of aimed towards the nations that are not following or observing or loving or honoring God, specifically Assyria and Babylon, but there's a lot of warning in there of what'll happen, what happens when you're outside of God's favor and blessing. Then Israel's defeated and enslaved. So skipping ahead in, in chapters 36 and 38, these books describe the plight of God's people in the midst of this war and captivity. The writing describes both the short and long-term hope that they have for righteous salvation, righteous leadership, the King Hezekiah to come. But how this hope in just and true leadership really is pointing towards the Messiah that is to come. And right in the middle of these two sections is chapter 35. You know, with that backstory in mind and without too much kind of to spoil it, you'll see what I mean if you kind of think about those two contexts and then what we actually hear in verse 35. Before we read that, let's pray. God of signs and wonders, we come to your word again and again, seeking understanding in the new life that it offers. By the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we may believe this testimony and have eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our teacher and our savior. Amen. Isaiah 35, it'll be on the screens for you. You're welcome to turn there. Even in the wilderness, a desert and desert, even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be abundant flowers and singing of joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon and as lovely as Mount Carmel and the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like the deer. And those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh, grass, and reeds and rushes will flourish 
in the desert where desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through that once deserted land and it will be named the highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel upon it. It will be only for those who seek in God's ways. Foolish, fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its courses, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no more dangers. Only the redeemed will walk upon it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. Those, they will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Isaiah 35 describes God's promises, but also his willingness, his ability, and his intent to bring healing to his creation. The healing will be all-encompassing. As God transforms nature, we saw that in verses 1 and 2, God's interested in transforming nature, but also broken humanity, our bodies, verses 3 through 6. But then eventually, God returns and transforms creation and people to, and calls them and gathers us to himself, verses 6 through 10. And it, would, and it will elicit joy and praise in us, all those who hear. So God's plan since the very beginning, this isn't news to you, but it's worth saying. God's plan since the very beginning, since the fall of the humans in chapter 3, has been to return all creation and restore it to what he intended it to be, right? He's going, his ongoing work, exercised through the ministry of Jesus and through us in our way following the kingdom, is to return all things to its intended design. God's plan promises salvation to a fallen world, which will be purged from the curse of sin and purified so that it radiates the very glory of God. This is good news. This is what God is working towards. We're given beautiful, lush metaphors of how God will remake the most bleak and harsh aspects of the land and our lives. The wilderness will bloom with flowers. The dry parched land will receive rain and be transformed into a lush green landscape. Dry ground will spring forth in pools of water. Ground once barren will be covered with grass and reeds and rushes. Even wild and dangerous animals that prowl will no longer be a threat. When God's kingdom has its way, all of nature bursts not only into bloom, but also into song. The very environment of God's people will reflect this beauty. The prophet has in mind the transformation that will be coming over the land, and he kind of compares it to like as we're looking at a bleak, cold winter, and we're looking forward to that springtime that will come and bring new life and new rejuvenation. It's a very fitting connection. The whole face of the earth will be changed. Glorious restoration, though, will go beyond creation and our environment, and it will also impact us, our bodies, our souls, our physical conditions. 
God's redemptive work will bring restoration and salvation to his people. And we will be freed from the sin, the tyranny of sin and death and its results on our bodies and our lives. Is anyone looking forward to that? We have that, don't we? Christ has come. We have salvation. We have forgiveness. We have restoration. But here we are, continuing in our Advent theme of being in between. We recognize that things are not yet right. Are, you, are we looking forward to this? The weary will be renewed. Does that sound good? The fearful will be given courage. The blind will see, the lame will walk, the mute will speak. Not just speak, they'll sing with joy. When God's kingdom is at work in our physical lives, there is a change. When Christ comes and his will is released in the world, healing and restoration of creation and our bodies take place. As a matter of fact, some of you may recognize a few of these statements, such as the blind will see, the lame will walk, the mute will speak. It might kind of be resonating with you because a few weeks ago, we studied this passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus quoted this passage. Remember, we were studying the way of Jesus. This is the way. And many people were beginning to question what Jesus was doing, the results and how he was teaching and doing things that they didn't expect. It was different. Even to the point that John the Baptist had questions. While imprisoned, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus kind of once and for all, hey, John wants us to know, are you really the Messiah or should we be waiting for somebody else? And in response to John's question about whether Jesus was the one that was to bring the kingdom of heaven into reality, Jesus pointed back to his cousin. He gave this message to take back. Go back to John and tell them, what you have heard and seen, the blind see, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are risen to life. When Jesus Christ comes, healing takes place. When he was here on earth, healing took place. In our lives, in sometimes greater and sometimes lesser ways, we experience healing. When Christ returns, all things will be healed and made right. Where there has been confusion or loss, the clear way to life and joy is revealed like a highway in the wilderness when Christ is in the midst. Where we might have had trouble discerning perhaps Christ's intention or direction or way for us. All things will be made clear. The ransomed and the prisoner will be restored and will return home. And they will sing and shout with joy. These are amazing promises. These are the promises that should get our hearts beating, should get our blood pumping. The optimistic among us are probably feeling that right now. My dad is here today, and he's one of those guys. I know he's excited, even though he's probably sitting stoically. 
But for some of you, and don't be ashamed, for some of you, maybe you're not feeling so joyful. Maybe it's still hard. You may look at these promises about God's power to heal, to bring change with a bit of cynicism. Because frankly, you've been sitting in a season that's been hard for a long time. Here, now, we see much evidence kind of to the contrary because war still exists. What's happening in Haiti right now, it's hard to listen to. Violence, pain, disease, famine, cholera, of all things. You know, even we believers can feel this tension. Even those who may be on the road, we still recognize the need for salvation, the need for a savior. And if you're thinking that way, you're probably feeling the exact way that most of those hearing Isaiah's prophecies, most of Isaiah's words were feeling. They might have even more claim for cynicism than we do because they didn't have the first advent to compare. They were still longing for the first coming of the Messiah. We, though, are in this middle ground, this tension between the first and the second advents. But those who Isaiah was writing to, they had not seen that first miracle yet. So how do we respond accordingly? How do we live faithfully into this? We have a clear promise, a clear command to be joyful a clear hope for joy, but how can we fully live into that promise when the realities of the fallen world around us so often come crashing in? Especially when the land, especially when those challenges, those trials land very close to home, perhaps in our own bodies, in our own ailments, in the death of loved ones, or even our own physical struggles. Well, thankfully, we do have the miracle of Jesus. We do have the miracle of Christ come in his first advent. His freedom over sin and death and his victory over the cross and the promise of forgiveness and salvation. And we also have the promise of his second coming, the advent to come. But how do we remain hopeful? How do we kind of hold on to joy in the midst? Well, the disciples often had the same question. They wondered the same thing. In various ways, they asked Jesus these questions. And Jesus responded to those questions many times, but we're going to take a look at one of them, one of my favorites. It comes from John chapter 15. He answers this question of how to remain hopeful and joyful in our lives. In chapter 15 of John, of course, it begins with the story of the vine and the branches. Remember this story? Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. God is the gardener. The Holy Spirit is the gardener. Trimming and caring for us. And the command is to remain. Remain in the vine. That makes sense. A branch removed from the vine will wither and die. So remain in the vine. But let's look at the verses that come right after this command to remain. Starting in verse 9. It'll be on the screens, yeah. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. 
When you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment, to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. And if you do what I command, I will no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go to produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. This is my command, love each other. So deep and true lasting joy comes from devotion to God and in living in the love of Jesus. You know, I think if we consider the moments in our lives where joy tended to permeate difficult situations, it's likely been when we've been able to put the focus off of ourselves and onto those around us. Does that sound right? Does that sound close to your experience? Despite our own hurts, despite our own sorrows, how were we able to love and to consider those around us. To do for them all the things that Jesus demonstrated and, to, and that all the things that Jesus asked us to do. By doing this, joy became a byproduct or happiness became a byproduct because we were choosing to do the thing that Jesus was asking us to do. Another theme that recurs often in Isaiah, it was in our assurance of forgiveness this morning, is the theme of drawing water and drinking from a well. Isaiah 55 is the command that says, come, draw, eat what is good, right? Isaiah 12 has this theme of drawing from the well. The word well as my mom would say it, or any Southern, the word whale comes from the Hebrew root word, which means salvation. So the well is salvation. That's why in, in Isaiah 12, it says from the fountain of salvation. But you know what this word salvation is in the Hebrew? It's the root, Yeshua. The command is to come and draw from Jesus. To be reminded of what he asks us to do. And to commit to living and following that. Isaiah 12, 3 through 4 says, With joy you will drink deeply from the, sal from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day, you will sing, thank the Lord, praise his name. Tell the nations what he has done. Let them know how mighty he is. With joy, you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. That's right. 
Isaiah is encouraging us to have hope and joy. And by getting this hope and joy, to be drinking and drawing from the well of Christ. The well of salvation is none other than the forgiveness, the teaching, the examples of loving and doing the things that Christ did. We can experience joy that we read about in Isaiah 35, what Mary describes when the angel comes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth, what the shepherds experienced on that night when the angelic host was before them, what the wise men experienced when they visited the Christ child. We experience this joy, this true salvation, when we love and we follow the commands and the guidance and the demonstration, the example of Christ in our lives. Hope is sustained and stirred up in us when we follow what Christ did. While remaining faithful and hopeful and expectant of Christ's second advent. Like the nation of Israel, we long for a righteous and just leader. We long for righteous and just leadership, even in our own civil lives, and that's good. We long for our societies, our cultures, our cities, our towns, our country to be a place that promotes justice and holiness in our nation and the nations around the world. But we also recognize that that's not going to come through an earthly leader. We need Jesus. And we do our best. Christ-like leaders are a good thing and they guide us well. But we also must recognize where our hope comes from. We watch and we catch glimpses and experiences of moments of joy, perhaps moments of shalom, the peace and right relatedness of all things. But we also long for the fullness of the second coming, don't we? By faith, we believe that Jesus can do what he promised. By faith, we trust that everything old will be broken and will, everything old and broken will be restored and made new again. By faith, we believe that not only our souls, but also our bodies and the rest of creation will be redeemed and restored. The passage from a couple weeks ago, our, our first Advent message in Romans chapter 8, I won't read the whole thing, but it's the passage that says, all of creation has been groaning and expecting the hope that is to come. Even us who have the Holy Spirit recognize it. And yet, we can have hope. We wait eagerly for that day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies and new creation he's promised. Today, through, though, through today, though today, in our surroundings and our circumstances, we might try and tell, we might try and notice, we might kind of have no option but to notice the things sometimes feel otherwise. We trust, even though we recognize that tension, we trust that God can and will restore and make things all right. Revelation 21, 5 says, and the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down 
for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. God's coming signals a future for those who at times might have been given in to hopelessness and sorrow. If that's been you today, recently, the reminder is to take courage, to resist shame, to come and drink from the well of salvation. In God, these wilderness moments in our lives, whether physical or emotional, may become hopeful, may become restored, no longer weary struggle. That's what Advent does. That's what Advent awakens in us. It awakens hope, peace, joy, and love. Of course, we recognize that joy is in our hearts. Happiness might sit on our face. Joy is in our soul. Happiness is in the moment. Joy transcends. Happiness reacts. Joy embraces peace and contentment, waiting to be discovered. Joy runs deep and overflows, while happiness might hug and say hello. Joy is a practice and a behavior. It's deliberate and intentional. Happiness comes and goes blithely along its way. Joy is profound and scriptural. Don't worry, rejoice. Happiness is a balm. Don't worry, be happy. Joy is an inner feeling. Happiness is an outward expression. Joy endures hardship and trials and connects with meaning and purpose. A person pursues happiness, but dwells in joy. In closing, as we have the last few weeks, I direct your attention to the insert, the, bold, the page notes or the sermon notes. On the back, we have a poem by Nelson Kostchevsky called Stir Up Your Power. This will be our closing prayer for today. Stir up your power, Lord, uphold the weak. Make bent things straight, Lord, and straight things make true. Let even fools learn what the wise ones seek. Rekindle all love and all hearts renew. Stir up your power, Lord, to clear the way. Straighten the path of our wandering walk. Turn dark night's guilt into penitent day. Let peaceful prayer replace our idle talk. Stir up your power, Lord, and take your throne. Today, show the world what has always been, that our eyes may see what our faith has known, that heaven and earth may be freed from sin. Stir up your power, Lord, to guide us home. For guilty, we've turned and fled from your face. In dry, tactless paths we've chosen to roam. Draw us, dear Lord, to your heavenly place. Come, Jesus, come as you once came before. Blow, Spirit, blow as you once blew before. Bless, Father, bless as you once blessed before. 
Teach your church once more to bless and adore.